In today's Greenlight episode, I will speak with B. Huey Yee, the founder of The Power of We, a social impact consultancy about climate justice, the Black Lives Matter movement, and why more clean tech companies can and should abide by the triple bottom line. We will also speak about the importance of focusing on intersectionality, which is a framework for understanding how aspects of an individual's social, political, and other dimensions of their identity, such as race, class, sexuality, or ability, are combining to create unique modes of discrimination and privilege. Thanks for tuning into the green light. Now let's dive in. I'm Catherine McLean. I'm founder and CEO of Dylan Green. And today I have with me B. Huey Yay. She's the founder of The Power of We. And she's based in the Bay Area. Thanks for joining me, B. Thanks so much for having me, Catherine. <laughs> so, B, tell us a little bit about yourself and the power of we. Sure. So, I'm a classic millennial in the sense that I left undergrad with this huge mission to make a positive impact on the world. And I saw energy as foundational to that mission because it's such a platform that touches so many different social impact topics, right? Access to healthcare, education, helping with gender equity issues, and of course, with the big systemic climate crisis. So in a way, it allowed me to sort of defer my decision of what I wanted to do with my life and how I could make that a really meaningful career and journey. And what I realized is that I didn't just want to start an energy career. I wanted to tackle the climate change crisis in some of the hardest places first because that felt like a way to create the most scalable and meaningful impact. And so that led me to a career in some big energy players like the oil and gas space in energy service companies and sort of a really institutionalized model where I wanted to see how we could connect that back to social impact. And then most recently at Engie, which is a global utility and independent power producer and figuring out how the centralized utility model could really enable decarbonized transition to a more sustainable future. And so through all of that, I took a step back and saw a huge gap in what the energy industry could and should do to help with not just climate change, but also climate justice and social justice. That led to the creation of The Power of We, which is a social impact consultancy that brings an intersectional lens to these topics, meaning... How do we first eradicate apathy on these tough topics, but second, really turn that care into action around issues that really center people and start to unpack the dimensions of our identities, whether they're marginalized or not, and how we can create social change that's positive from a very intersectional way. Can you provide an example of an organization within clean energy that you think truly embodies what you call the triple bottom line? Can you tell us what the triple bottom line is? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of companies, a lot of listeners are in the corporate world, and we always talk about the bottom line, which is shareholder value. How? Tell me how much money we're making. What's the profit? What's the ROI on this? Mm -hmm. That's the language of business. 
And the triple bottom line is introducing other dimensions that we should be measuring, whether they're negative externalities when we produce a product, like what is the effect on the environment, pollution on the community. And so it boils down into what does this mean for people? What does this mean for the planet? And of course, what does this mean for profit? Yep. And that's the triple bottom line where you can really get a holistic sense of what is the impact of my company, my organization on these three dimensions rather right. than only prioritizing profit. And recently, last year, the business roundtable basically said they embraced this idea by shifting from it's all about shareholder value to it's all about stakeholder value, mm-hmm. meaning that the planet is a stakeholder. The clients that we serve and the communities that we operate in are stakeholders. Our suppliers and our supply chain and um, our partners and different organizations are stakeholders. So it just becomes a lot more holistic when you're talking yeah. about the triple bottom line. So examples of organizations that do this well, and it's, it's important to really think about not just what companies are saying, right? That's why greenwashing and rainbow washing with LGBT rights and and that community, that's happened because companies put up logos with a rainbow in the month Mm -hmm. of May and they post black squares and say Black Lives Matter. But when you dig deeper and you think about what beyond your statement are you doing as a company, to support these causes and the employees that care about these causes, um, that's where it becomes really apparent, is this authentic or not? Mm -hmm. And the way to figure out which companies are doing this well is to analyze their actions and the outcomes and the impact that they're making around these different causes. So, you know, Patagonia, Unilever, a lot of these big enterprises in sort of the consumer or business to consumer space, they're kind of iconic examples where, for example, Patagonia has programs where you refurbish your old clothes. You can bring them back in, they'll pay you for them, or they'll repair them and give them back to you or donate them. And on Black Friday, which is a big push for consumerism, they they famously donated 100% of their proceeds back to causes around environmental sustainability and conservation, right? Because they're recognizing that at the core of their business, it goes against sustainability, right? Because you're buying and consuming more. And I think addressing that in a very real manner, that the core business is actually not sustainable, is tough to do, but it shows that it's an authentic investment in the cause around sustainability. Mm-hmm. So your original question of like which clean energy company is doing mm-hmm. this well, I really had to think about that and it sort of validated my viewpoint that our industry is way behind. Unfortunately, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're already doing feel-good work, right? We're very mission-oriented. We're very mission-driven because we're trying to save the planet. What happens is that this was a reflection for me personally in my career is that you get so tied up in that cause that you forget about the other parts of that triple bottom line, right? People, you're thinking about planet, you're necessitated to think about profit, but then people, which people? are we centering and solving for? And is it sort of this majority of white, heteronormative, able-bodied, middle-upper-class 
you know, people that we create climate solutions for? Or is it black indigenous people of color, frontline communities that live, that are dealing with coastal erosion, that are dealing with uh, huge climate change effects when they have the least to do with the reason we are in this place to begin with. And so I think lots of clean energy companies get triple bottom line. I think that they are doing good work in terms of the environment, but a lot of them, most of them are missing this intersectional part of racial and social justice. And I think there's a huge opportunity for people and companies. So for every dollar paid to white, non-Hispanic men, Latinas are paid 54 cents. Native American women are paid 57 cents. Black women, 62 cents. White, non-Hispanic women, 79 cents. Asian women, 90 cents. Why do you think that this is, and how can organizations better account for intersectional issues such as this? I think to give a brief definition of intersectionality, right? It's a framework for understanding how aspects of an individual's social and political and other dimensions of their identity, race, class, sexuality, ability, Mm -hmm. physical appearance, they're combining to create unique modes of discrimination and privilege. Mm -hmm. So being Asian, female, able-bodied, there's different parts of my identity that are marginalized and there's different parts that give me privilege. And everybody experiences that in a different way in the social constructs that we live and move through. And so that's sort of just to give a definition of it. And I think the reason why it's so important is because when work isn't intersectional, right? When we create climate solutions, for example, and we're just thinking about one majority, that's where they fail. Because while the problem is global in nature and systemic, everybody is not experiencing it in the same way, just like everybody is not experiencing COVID in the same way. And so the short answer to your question about the wage gap is because systemic sexism exists in our corporate world. And you layer on top of that systemic racism and then all these other marginalized identities of the workforce that people experience as they move through a corporate world, which is built by and run by a very entrenched white authority, male dominated landscape. And when you compound that over a career, so someone getting into a first job at a salary, which is unconsciously or consciously created based on all of those marginalized identities. And then every time that person tries to jump and renegotiate their salary, they've started at a different starting point, a lower starting point, and every jump that they make, they're working through those unconscious bias that recruiters or HR departments. And honestly, it's not down to individuals all the time. It's again, systemic. There's just so many forces that are feeding into why these wage gaps exist. And so there's there's lots of different factors as to why this happens, right? There's a difference in industries. I can break it down a bit. There's a difference in industries or jobs worked between, let's just take men and women, for example. When you think about the gender gap between STEM careers and how most science, technology, engineering, math careers are male-dominated, trades like building and construction, which is also male-dominated, versus some of the more traditionally female-dominated industries like childcare, there's a big wage difference there already. So industry matters, 
difference in years of experience. A lot of women still leaving the workforce when they start a family. And that's usually because heterosexual couples where you're thinking about who makes more and, you know, just the economics of it. And so women are disproportionately driven out of the workforce to accommodate caregiving. And that has to do with how companies maternity and paternity policies look like and how to make that more equitable. There's also a difference in hours worked as related to healthcare. And then of course the big topic of discrimination and how gender, even with gender-based pay discrimination being illegal, it still happens all the time because of unconscious biases and sort of the systemic nature of what we're working in. So what can we do about this? There's, there's a lot of work and consultants in the gender pay gap disparity space specifically. I think the general recommendation that I would have is employers absolutely need to start working on this and thinking about it and not thinking that it's someone else's problem. Every company can and should be transparent about their own data where like the numbers and statistics that you shared, every company needs to do a deep audit in terms of where they stand against that data and set a benchmark that feels equitable and inclusive for them. And then not hide until they get to a better place, but share it and be transparent and stay accountable to their current workforce and future workforce in terms of how they're moving through closing the wage gap. So if you can't quantify the problem, you can't solve it. And I I see so many companies in the clean energy space in particular, right, which I know the best, that aren't even talking about it and don't even know where they stand in the problem. So sticking on this topic of intersectionality, let's see how it relates to the BLM movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. So Kimberly Crenshaw, who's the executive director of the African American Policy Forum, uh, she developed the theory of intersectionality as well as created the hashtag Say Her Name campaign in light of the lesser-known African-American female victims of police brutality. In fact, she gave a TED Talk in which the majority of audiences admitted knowing far more African-American male victims as opposed to African-American female victims. Why are police brutality victims that are African-American men much more known on average than African-American female victims? And why is it important to recognize distinctions like this? That's a big, heavy topic, right? It's a heavy topic. (laughs) Yeah, that even within this larger injustice around police brutality and how the Black community has had to work through all of this oppression over centuries in just the United States, right? It's global, but let's just focus on the United States. How within that, we forget and put more put more news time, put more effort and energy and awareness building on African-American men or black men versus black women. That's, that's why intersectionality is so important because all of these different dimensions of our identity are knitted together and you can't really peel it apart. I think what's super important to peel out here is the concept of complicity. Having some marginalized identities doesn't mean you're absolved from doing any wrong. As an Asian American immigrant female, I have a lot of anti-racist work I need to actively do 
to be a true ally for my black and brown peers and to <laughs> really be an advocate for Black Lives Matter, right? For trans folk, we've talked about that community, for yep. the LGBT community, for these different marginalized communities that have been otherized, meaning they are not put in the center of our conversations. They're not invited in, they're not listened to. Just in the dichotomy of male versus female, maybe being a black man, you think there's no way I could be racist or sexist. That's absolutely not true. We, we all have work to do. And that's why I want to focus in on this concept of complicity. Like we need to look in the mirror and we need to each actively think about what we can do to be anti-racist. What are my privileges and where do I suffer from a lot of the systemic issues that we've talked about now? The worst thing that you can do is to, apart from thinking you have no work to do, is to compare, right? Like who has it harder? Is it harder to be an Asian female or is it harder to be a Latino man? And I think the point is you need to adopt a view that diversity and equity and inclusion is critical and to understand where you can fall into the path towards achieving those things in your workplace, in your friend group, in whatever communities that you're active in. I think I want to really reiterate, we all have work to do, and that work looks different for each of us, but none of us are absolved from it based on our marginalized identities. And comparing really puts you in a place of um, a zero-sum game, rather than thinking about not just widening the pie, but reallocating resources and access to power and inclusion in a way that really achieves equity rather than just saying, if one person advances, that means that I'm falling behind. Yeah, it's really interesting. It is it is a heavy topic, but it's a topic that I think we just, we have to talk about. There will inevitably be an urge to return to the status quo, but companies that waste the crisis, quote unquote, um, by failing to innovate may fall behind their more creative counterparts in terms of medium to long-term strategy. If we look at Germany, for example, Already 60 powerful German business leaders, including E.ON and Allianz, have proposed that any government bailouts are directly linked to climate action. Do you think that companies that are not innovating and honing in on the triple bottom line will be left behind? Yeah, it's interesting to see this global pandemic characterized as the great pause. Mm -hmm. I think that in a lot of ways, we've seen what's possible to reduce harm, reduce pollution, right? We saw global carbon emissions fall by 17% or to 2006 levels during this sort of great pause because air travel was paused because a lot of overall movement of people was um, diminished, but the drop was temporary. And as we've started to open up and sort of prioritize economic activity over public health concerns and safety, especially in America, I think it's important to retain that question of what's necessary and sustainable and what do we hold on to from this great pause time to recover better and recover in a way that is cognizant of what we're capable of doing as a global mm-hmm. society. I think particularly in energy, you know, we're seeing this shift now, this 
pandemic has been a catalyst for a, a faster shift to renewables away mm -hmm. from coal that's based on price and total cost of investment and also political will, right? It's getting cheaper, but people are demanding it more. And then I think something that's really uncomfortable and tough for people to think about is how do we reject or adopt a degrowth mindset? How do we reject sort of the capitalist principles that we are all steeped in and think about where 3% GDP growth consistently, right, is not something that we strive for, but we start to shift towards circular economy or regenerative concepts where it's not always about produce more, consume more, and then the effects of that, which is waste more and pollute more. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. So, in short, I think that the Great Pause has given us a lot to reflect on and that we should also in that reflection consider how pausing is a privilege and that while for many of us it's allowed us to work from home and, and think about how we maybe adjust our individual lifestyles, for many essential workers, both healthcare but also delivery personnel and people bagging groceries, you know, yep. they've had to take on the brunt of risk because they have no other choice. I think it's better to think about it almost as the great awakener. Like with most crises, it really uncovers the inequities that have always been there, right? The racial and social inequities that have been there and why black, brown, indigenous communities, people of color are bearing the brunt of COVID the most. We've yep. seen that in the numbers and in the data of who's being infected and which communities are carrying the majority of the effects of this so far. And so I think that some companies are mobilizing to do that. And I think it takes a lot of uncomfortable reflection first to think about how do you not prioritize uh, capitalism but thinking about circular economy and a degrowth mindset. And then really importantly, how do you center these frontline communities in the work that your organization is doing when you're probably focused on segments of your customer base that are not reflective of the people who need your help the most? Right. How do we get people to care? How do we get people to join us in this fight? Yeah, I'll give a shout out to Women in Clean Tech and Sustainability. It's a wonderful organization where yeah. I've talked about this and I've spent a lot of time working with C-suite executives and public sector officials and decision makers to get them to care, whether that's yeah. about the climate or sustainability or how to engage their community maybe surprising to people in the industry is that a lot of people don't care about climate change. It's super easy to deprioritize. The time scale is too long. It doesn't affect me. Mm. And the problem is that we're inundated with headlines, just thinking about 2020, right? Mm -hmm. Crazy wildfires in Australia, obviously this global pandemic, killer bees, lots of injustices happening. Bubonic plague. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, repatriation of indigenous land, police brutality, it's too much, right? Mm -hmm. And what happens is that it puts us in a cycle, wanting to care and then having to rely on defense mechanisms just to move through our day. And those mechanisms often appear in the form of apathy, disconnecting, disillusionment, overwhelm, 
breaking down, checking out, like there's all these different ways that it manifests so that you can continue to function as a human being. And ultimately what it results in is that people don't act and they stop caring because it's just too much. To boil it down, you know, there's a lot more that can be done around how to make people care, but it's really down to three steps. The first is that you have to catch people's attention. There's lots of different ways to do that, but if you're not hooking someone then you don't have them. It's hard to do that in the context that is 2020, but I think we've been given unique opportunity, again, as we talked about, to pause, to listen, and to reevaluate our priorities in terms of what we are going to work on, how we will build that better. The second step is to create an experience that is way more powerful than giving someone a hundred page report like the IPCC put out on why we need to keep global warming under two degrees and proving to people that climate change is real and what we are in store for, which is not pretty. So creating an experience makes it personal, but also because so many of these systemic problems and challenges feel invisible, systemic racism, systemic sexism, the climate crisis, how do you show someone that? gotten that lived experience themselves, if they haven't experienced pollution in their own community, if they haven't felt discriminated against in the workplace. You can talk about it all you want, but until someone experiences it very in a very tangible way, they're not going to start caring. And the third thing is you have to facilitate a small action. I think why that's so powerful is because there's lots of research around behavioral psychology and what makes people change. And there's this concept of the attitude behavior gap where people act in ways that don't jive with how they think. We see this in how people vote. We see this in how people shop. We see this in how people treat others. There's lots of attitude behavior gap examples of how we rationalize different things and we act differently than we think. And so the reason why taking a small action is so powerful is because it's been proven that it's more impactful for someone to act and then change their mind rather than changing their mind and then act. Whether it's, I'm going to recycle this plastic bottle today, even though I don't believe that recycling makes an impact on environmental conservation or sustainability or that it really has a significant difference, the act of doing it is sort of a gateway into adopting other sustainable behaviors on a pathway to having a sustainable lifestyle. Just like the example we talked about earlier, right? Identifying the pronouns that you use at the start of a conversation is a way to start to include the trans community and create a comfort level um, just through language. And that's a step that's a small action, even if you might not believe in systemic discrimination or understand what the trans community has gone through, you're you're on that path. And so you catch people's attention, you create an experience for them, and then you take that small action. And that's basically the catalyst to how we can get people to care and how I'm working with organizations and companies to get them to not only care, but turn that care into really meaningful action. Thanks for listening to the Greenlight Podcast. Are you looking for your next role in climate tech? Join the latest growing network of clean tech professionals and be the first to know about what industry-leading clean tech companies 
first post new job openings from development to finance to marketing by checking out our website, dylan-green.com slash latest hyphen jobs. Dylan Green is transforming business through talent. You can also find us on YouTube where we engage with today's top clean energy leaders.